cool. Man, that... Kids, kiddos, munchkins, you can go follow Annika, go to Sing Your Hearts Away. Be ready to sing till you're blue in the face. Flannel. It's like Flannel Friday, but it's not Friday. <laughs> Man, that kiddo had the cutest hiccups. <laughs> cool. Man, it was so cool what Russell was saying about peace. I almost feel like I should just, you know, we could just go home now. Um, but let's imagine, let's imagine a time like, like when the football is leaving the quarterback's hands. Imagine a time when you felt peace or like when stuff is in slow motion. Uh, our elders and staff have been sending out devotionals for Advent. And Jeff White had a good one about being in the forest and experiencing God. Maybe you feel peace when you're by the fireplace or with your family during the season of peace. Um, for me... A profound moment of peace was when I was on the summit of a big mountain in Alaska called Denali. I'd been climbing for 10 days and uh, got to the top at great lengths. I was like under a crushing load like that song is talking about. I was like, yes, I know what that's like. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine the pain right now afterwards. The summit is sort of this razor's edge ridge. And you get up to it, and there's this cornice. And this wisp of wind came off the cornice right when I got there. And it was like in slow motion. And then it was total calm, which never happens. I mean, some of you guys have been on top of big mountains, like 14ers around here and stuff. And it's almost always super windy, super loud. But not this time. It was crazy. It was like in slow motion, total calm. Not even a cloud in the sky. But... At this moment of peace, I realized what it took me to get there was anything but peaceful. It was noise and suffering. It, those, the noise and suffering was mixed together so much that I got to a point where I was just like hearing voices um, and just carrying these huge loads just in the suffer fest. But the mountain is kind of like life. Right? We're always surrounded by suffering and noise and even death, oftentimes. But when people get off the mountain, like most climbers when they get off Denali are, are changed. Like the flight service that takes us on and off the glacier um, says that most people when they get off they're kind of depressed or disturbed or uneasy. They're definitely not at peace. And they're super curious about like my demeanor they're like how come you seem at peace you're like in great spirits there were there were deaths when i was on the mountain and they're like what's the deal how can you be at peace and i was like i don't know god i guess i didn't think about it that much and i've been thinking about it a lot recently um so what equipped me to be at peace on this deadly mountain in this deadly environment we'll come back to that Right now, we find ourselves 
in a time where peace is super hard to come by, right? Everything around us is anything but peaceful. It's uneasy. The world is uneasy. Our country is uneasy. The election makes us uneasy. There's discord and division everywhere. I mean, there's the protests going on. There's wars. Everywhere we look, there's a lack of healthy dialogue, for sure. There's chaos all over. And right here in Summit, kids are scared their parents will get deported. Families will get broken up. Addiction and mental health issues are are running rampant here in Summit County. Um, And yeah, actually, Kathy Reed talked about in the first service, CASA advocates for people who are, kids who are abused or um, neglected. And there are hungry and cold people here. Let's look more towards like our individual selves. Culture and media influences us to act in fear. Fear is a motivation. They use fear, culture and media use fear to influence our decisions and our actions. And I do it all the time. Um, and I go down that road and it, ends, it always ends in despair. Like, I mean, how much damage is done by those who are in power and are trying to use that power for themselves and not for others, trying to protect their own power? And how much chaos is caused by people who, are, who have some level of comfort but try to protect that comfort, scared that they'll lose some sort of, like, fake peace? I, in, in Summit County, there's this, like, scramble for happiness or fulfillment in experiences or fun times. I used to scramble frantically to be better than everybody else at skiing. And, and a lot of people come here from other places to get away from the hustle and bustle or the chaos, but peace is not easy to come by even here. Getting to the destination doesn't get us peace. We can't scramble for peace. So how do we get it? What is this peace? This peace that the angels announced that this little tiny baby Jesus is going to bring. Let's define this peace. Is it just the opposite of war? I think we have to go a little bit more upstream of that. Is it the opposite of just discontent? I think we could go even more upstream to the headwaters. Jesus himself, he always goes upstream of, of actions or outcomes, symptoms, to the source, which is the heart. A lot of things surprise me in my faith. Just recently, I was surprised by the fact that 1 John 4 teaches us that the opposite of fear is something unexpected. It's not fearlessness or courage even. The opposite of fear is love, because perfect love drives out fear. Just as surprisingly, in Philippians, Mark talked about when we were going through Philippians in Philippians 4, Paul teaches us that the headwaters of this life-giving stream of peace is suffering rightly. Paul, when he writes Philippians, he's suffering in prison for the sake of other people's wholeness in the gospel.
So the source of this peace is pouring out our own interests for the sake of others' interests. It's not something we can get by scrambling around for it. So Paul wrote about this, but Paul, being a good Pharisee, probably got it from someone else. And he knew the Old Testament, right? He, it's memorized for him. So let's go back to where he got this idea from. In the Old Testament, peace is shalom, is the Hebrew word, which Mark was talking about. Um, it's defined as wholeness, or rest, or the presence of a justice that restores, heals, and redeems. The presence of mercy and compassion and integrity in a community. This wholeness is God's work of removing from our being opposition to himself. This conception of peace applies to every aspect of our being. Body, soul, heart, mind. And it applies to every aspect of our community. So our families, our neighborhoods, our state, our country, the world, all the way to the end of the universe. It reaches all the way from here, all the way in and all the way out. That's how far it reaches. This piece is uh, defined a lot of times by a relationship of friendship, care, loyalty, love. It's the covenant relationship that God has between him and his people and the people have with each other. So there's all these connotations to this word shalom. Isaiah, which gives us insight into who Jesus is, also gives us insight into this concept of peace. So we're going to look at a passage that is pretty familiar in this season, um, in Isaiah 9. But the context of this passage is, Isaiah is a prophet, right? He's speaking to Israel's leaders this message, and this message has tension. Mark loves the tension, but it is. It's a message of tension. The tension between judgment and hope. But this judgment isn't just a punishment that like just squashes, right? And just leaves them squashed <laughs> like a pancake. <laughs> but it's a purifying fire. This punishment. And it will bring a new Jerusalem by which all nations will be blessed. So in the passages around Isaiah 9, so kind of looking at the section of 7 through 12, chapter 7 through 12, this judgment is going to come by way of Assyria and Babylon, these empires that are military strengths, taking Israel into exile. But Isaiah says there's, there's hope, right? There's the tension. There will be a new king named Emmanuel. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right? This is what we call Jesus. This king will bring freedom from violent, oppressive empires who Israel is no stranger to feeling oppressed or kept down. They are no stranger to suffering. These oppressive empires are like Egypt, Assyria, Babylon. But this king brings freedom from those. And this king is the shoot from this stump. Israel's the stump that gets cut down and burned, and the shoot comes out, and it's from the 
stump of David's family. This is the messianic king. And in Isaiah, he is empowered by God's spirit to rule over the new Jerusalem and bring justice, this healing love, to the poor. And all the nations are going to look to this messianic king for guidance. All ethnicities. All of creation will be transformed by this kingdom, this new kingdom that this king is going to bring about. And it's going to bring peace and wholeness. This ruler is from the line of David, and he's going to bring peace to the world. This is God's kingdom. And, and Isaiah knows that the kingdom is, is now, right? Israel's there, but it's also... It has, it's not yet. It hasn't happened yet because he's hoping. Isaiah knows we're still waiting for God's justice to bring peace and healing love to a still broken world. So one of our favorite titles for Jesus is Prince of Peace, right? That comes from Isaiah 9, 6-7. We're going to look at there. You can open your Bibles or your phones on Follow along. I'm going to read from the message because I like the poetic and it kind of brings freshness to this verse that we hear a lot. But this Prince of Peace is this king and he defeats his enemies. That's how he brings about peace. That's how all kings brought about peace in that time. He defeats his enemies to bring healing, love, and wholeness to his kingdom. Let's read Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For a child has been born, for us, the gift of a son, for us. He'll take over the running of the world. His names will be Amazing Counselor, Strong God, Eternal Father, Prince of Wholeness. His ruling authority will grow, and there will be no limits to the wholeness he brings. He'll rule from the historic David throne over that promised kingdom. He'll put that kingdom on a firm footing and keep it going with fair dealing and right living, beginning now and lasting always. It's interesting that this translation just goes straight to Prince of Wholeness. I kind of like that. But what are this prince's methods? Who's this king that's going to defeat his enemies? How does he defeat his enemies? For that, we have to go all the way, way forward, Isaiah 53. Another title we have for Jesus is Suffering Servant. So how is this king also a servant? Isaiah 53, 2-6 has a, a really different context than the first part of Isaiah that we just looked at. It's kind of exploring the hope, which Jim talked about last week. The expectation of the end of exile... And all nations see God's glory when Israel's out of exile. Israel is meant to be God's servant to the nations. But Israel, because of the exile, understandably, they question God's power. They're like, if God's so powerful, why are we suffering in Babylon and Assyria? How come we can't even be in our own land? They have hard hearts. But this servant is to restore Israel to be a light to the nations. How does he bring God's kingdom? What are his methods? They're not the methods of a normal king. They're rejection to the point of being killed. 
That's how he defeats his enemies. But this king will live again to make the people right with God. This is what Isaiah is saying. This servant announces God's kingdom to the poor. Through this servant king, God makes a covenant family of all nations and brings hope for a renewed creation, all of creation. So let's read about this suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 2-6. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was, down, he was looked down on in Passover, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is, it was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him, that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. He took the punishment, and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. We're all like sheep who've wandered off and gotten lost. We've all done our own thing, gone our own way, and God has piled all our sins, everything we've done wrong, on him. On him, on the suffering servant, who's the Prince of Peace. That was a reading of Isaiah 53, 2-6 from the message. But it's really... In our context now, it's clear to us that these two titles for Jesus are connected. They're descriptors of Jesus. But I don't think the people of Jesus' day connected those things, right? Because they're expecting this military power. Even today, you know, some people are expecting a military power to bring peace. I don't think the apostles connected these things until after the resurrection. That's when the light bulb goes on. And it changes the world. Jesus brings wholeness by way of suffering. Right? The angels announced this peace at Jesus' birth. And then Jesus, at the end of his life, promises this peace, which Russell picked up on. He was exactly right. In John 14, 27, Jesus promises his peace to his people. And in 1633. But he also promises suffering we learn from Acts 10.36 that the gospel is the good news of peace through Jesus the Messiah throughout scripture the whole arc of it the epitome solution God's strategy is a new heart for his community remember the hard hearts that Israel had Jesus is the vehicle of this redemption. He brings the new heart. The Prince of Peace and the Suffering Servant's job is to make new hearts in God's people. Then they can become peacemakers. So that happened a long time ago. What what about now? In the past few years, I've had some Catholic friends. I don't know much about their theology partly because of growing up in this context and just not being exposed. Um, 
But I've been asking my friends, like, what, what's, why do you pray to Mary? What's the big deal about Mary? And one of my, my friends, her answer was super helpful to me. It helped me grow, and it helped me understand. Just in, a, in another Advent devotional that Mark sent out recently, it talks about Mary and Joseph's faithfulness. And Mary's faithfulness is shocking. But not only is her faithfulness shocking, she bears this suffering servant, the Prince of Peace, she bears him to the world. She carried him so that he could be born to bring healing and restoration as the Messiah. Super interesting. She has a pivotal role. But it doesn't end there. My friend told me that Mary is in this way as the carrier of Jesus to the world, an image of the church. We're a community. We're a body. And we're a body that's supposed to bear Jesus to the world. We're to bear Christ in our bodies and in all our lives and bring him to the brokenness around us. He brings peace and wholeness to every aspect of our lives. Jesus is born to each part of us. In every part of us. Heart, mind, spirit, even body. That's the beauty of the Eucharist, the communion that we're going to take, is that we remember that he's born even to our physical bodies. But then we carry that out. Speak it out, act it out. We, as a community, we're a body that has a pivotal role in God's plan. So how does this transformation happen? God's primary way of working is through people and community. Not through moral superiority or something like that. Being a person of peace isn't being one who prays the most or just like floats through life unaffected. It's being someone who brings wholeness to the bodies, spirits, minds, and lives of their family, their neighbors, the outcasts, the marginalized, even their enemies. We can bring this wholeness to our county, our state, our nation, our world, creation. And it's suffering rightly by acting. Suffering rightly requires serving others selflessly. Actively and creatively meeting needs. Actively being a person and community of peace renders us incapable of self-interest. This is the power of God's kingdom, his people. It's not violence. Violence isn't the power that he uses. But it's a witness to the truth, right? So we're pointing to something. And we're pointing to truth. And when we're pointing to truth, we're not pointing at ourselves. We're pointing away from ourselves. So it's a selfless act. And it's respecting the other person who's watching us point to something else, respecting them enough to make their own decisions about that choice, make their own choice about that truth being pointed to. Manipulation and violence, they go out the window. I mean, just look at Jesus' life. He, his life was about pointing to God. 
and he didn't use any violence or any manipulation to convince others of the truth, even to the point of death. He absorbed the violence. And so we shouldn't only share our own stories when we're pointing to the truth, which we, sh- we should do that. It's really good. But we should also do truth. God is bringing healing and brokenness. He is he- bringing healing to the brokenness in us and those around us. That's why we do truth. So Jesus didn't stay a baby, right? He grew, he lived, and the end of his life is the cross. And the cross is the end of a life lived in struggle and suffering to bring God's peace in a world of violence. And because we expect and we hope for God's justice in all its wholeness and complexity, we can be people that bring his peace in its wholeness and complexity, to our enemies, to our neighbors, and our friends. (laughs) Discord, chaos, misery, those are easy, right? That's our default mode. Our default mode is self-interest. It's like the second law of thermodynamics. It's going to just, you know, go downhill. Let's transport ourselves back up to the mountain where I was climbing in Alaska. I had kind of committed to, whenever my feet were moving, to be praying. And uh, the Ukrainians and Russians that I was climbing with, I don't know if they picked up on it or what, but they were like, hey, could you pray for us? Could you pray for this meal? Could you pray for, you know, this guy, you know, some healing and some safety? And I was like, huh. I didn't know that I was supposed to be like the pastor up here. Um, And they would ask me at all these different points to pray. But that prayer, constantly praying, equipped me to be able to serve them and other people joyfully, usually. We would... We would like build half igloos for their tents to protect them against the wind, and we would give people food, me and this other guy, Ihor, from Ukraine. And uh, yeah, we'd just serve them however we could. And this prayer equipped me to do that, usually joyfully, unless I had altitude rage. But yeah, we would set up their camps, carry their stuff, pray with them. And that equipped me to make space in my heart for God's peace. And God's peace cyclically gave me strength to serve them, even in this deadly situation where I could have been like, I got to look out for myself because we're going to get stuck in an avalanche right now. But somehow I was equipped to not be like that. In short, me and Ehor would suffer for others. And while I was going up, I would occasionally read this book called The Hope of the Gospel by George MacDonald. And there's this profound section on the suffering of Christ. It helped me understand that when I was suffering, and I was suffering, that Jesus was suffering with me. He was there. And I also knew that I was participating in his suffering. It was this point of contact where God's presence was almost like tangible. And there's peace in that. 
even joy. It's his presence. And we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And by his strength, I got to the top, and then I I skied down. (laughs) That was great. So throughout Scripture, throughout this whole overarching narrative of Scripture, we're shown that obedience leads to peace. This is a surprising thing. Obedience doesn't lead away from suffering. Right? Just look at Jesus' life or Job's life. But this is why the gospel is hope. Suffering rightly brings peace. And peace equips us to suffer rightly. It's that cycle. This is what we learn from Jesus, from Isaiah, from Paul. That suffering on behalf of others is the way to bear peace to the world. So I'm constantly asking myself, how can I make my neighborhood whole? How can I make my county whole, my state whole, my country whole? How can I bear peace in this healing love and truth? How do I meet people's needs holistically? And these needs range from as small as carrying someone else's stuff up a mountain so they can get up it, to helping someone overcome addiction, which is more complex, to something even more complex as figuring out peace in a, a nation or finding a home for families driven from their countries by war. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a guy who understood the need for peace during World War II, says about peacemaking, The followers of Jesus have been called to peace. When he called them, they found their peace, for he is their peace. But now they are told that they must not only have peace, but make it. His disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflict it on others. They maintain fellowship where others would break it off. They renounce all self-assertion and quietly suffer in the face of hatred and wrong. In so doing, they overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world of war and hate. But nowhere will that peace be more manifest than where they meet the wicked in peace and are ready to suffer at their hands. The peacemakers will carry the cross with their Lord, for it was on the cross that peace was made. Now that they are partners in Christ's work of reconciliation, they are called the children of God, as he is the child of God. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for making peace. Jesus, thanks for bringing peace between us and you. Help us understand what it means to bring that out to the world and live in that and rejoice in it. In Jesus' name, amen.